0: The scripture reading this morning begins in 1 Corinthians 1.10, which can be found in, on page 952 in the Blue Bibles. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there have been quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say you were baptized in my name. I did uh, baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with, with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God.
1: Well, last week, we were introduced to the church at Corinth, and there Complicated relationship with the Apostle Paul. Uh, last week we saw Paul's gratitude to God for the way his grace was at work in this church, even though uh, they were in need of a lot of correction. And we also saw at the end of our passage last week in, in chapter 1, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians, we saw the Apostle's confidence uh, in God's faithfulness, that God was faithful, who had called these believers into the fellowship of his Son. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so it's that sense of fellowship that these believers have with Jesus, the the communion and the relationship that the Corinthian church has with Christ. It's that fellowship, that relationship, that communion that feeds naturally into Paul's concern for the church. He transitions now to talk about some of the problems that are in the church, and it's going to be a long letter. Uh, He starts there in verse 10. And he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So here at the outset of our passage, Paul is appealing to these believers. He wants them to adjust and to correct their behavior. He makes this plea, he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's not threatening them. He's reminding them of the grace that they've received through Jesus. And specifically, he reminds them, or he he, he appeals to them, rather, that he wants them to be the same. And he wants them to be the same in three ways. He says there in verse 10, he wants them all to agree. So literally, the words that Paul uses there, writing in the Greek language, uh, the words he uses there mean he wants them to say the same thing. He also wants them to be united there at the end of the verse, in the same mind. And he also wants them to be united in the same judgment. He wants them to say the same thing, to have the same mind, and to be united in the same judgment. He also expresses this idea negatively there. Uh, in verse 10, when he says that there be no divisions among you, right? That word for division has the sense of a tear in a garment, a sort of ripped or or rent piece of fabric. And so Paul starts out by saying, in light of this fellowship that you have with the Lord Jesus Christ, I appeal to you to be the same, Not not to be torn up into pieces, but to be united. Now, why is Paul saying that? Well, it seems that a report had reached Paul that the church was, in fact, in danger of coming apart at the seams. There in verse 11, we learn that Paul had received a report from Chloe's household that uh, members of the church were quarreling with one another. There in verse 12, we see that, in fact, they were not of the same mind and the same judgment. They weren't saying the same thing at all. But Paul summarizes for us, the, the, the way that they were expressing their quarrels. He, he gives us four statements that reflect the sort of torn attitude of the Corinthians. Uh, some, it seems, uh, there in verse 12, were saying, I follow Paul. Literally, it's, I'm a Paul man. I'm a Paul person. Uh, others seem to be loyal to Apollos. So Apollos is another teacher who followed Paul Uh, in Corinth. Others were saying, I follow Cephas. That's another name for the apostle Peter. He's sort of one of the the top leaders of the early church. And then some people, because there's always these people in every church, trying to rise above and sort of seize the moral high ground, they're saying, I follow Christ. And so Paul addresses that last group first, it seems there in verse 13, saying, oh, is is Christ divided? Are, Are you the ones in the church that have Christ Is he the possession of just your faction, but not all the others? And then he hits the other sort of groups with sort of rhetorical questions that show the absurdity of their division. Uh, He says there in verse 13, was Paul crucified for you? We might add, was Apollos or even Cephas crucified for you? Well, the answer is obviously no. Uh, When you were baptized, were you baptized into the name of Paul? or Apollos or Cephas? Well, of course not. The idea is ridiculous. And so Paul here is appealing with it to them, not to, not to divide off and not to be sort of disunited, not to be ripped apart by these different ways of thinking and different priorities, but instead to be united, to be of the same judgment, the same mind, saying the same thing. You see, the unity of the church is very important. We're not going to spend a ton of time on it now because actually Paul's going to come back to it in chapter 3 and, and sort of expand on his thinking here. He's really just introducing the topic and then we're going to see for the next couple of weeks he gets on sort of a digression uh, before he comes back to it. But for Paul, the church ought to be unified, ought to be thinking and saying the same thing. And what becomes clear as we work our way through this passage this morning is that that same thing that we ought to be saying and speaking and being u- unified of mind about is the gospel. That same thing is the message of the cross, the idea of Christ crucified. So we as a church don't have to be of the same mind and same opinion on a host of topics. We don't have to be of the same mind about global warming. We don't have to say the same thing about vaccines. We don't have to have the same opinion about movies or styles of music or the upcoming NFL season. But we must speak with one voice. We must be of the exact same mind. There must be unity when it comes to the gospel. When it comes to the proclamation that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. When we proclaim, as we saw last week, that we have been sanctified, called to be saints, brought into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that message that creates our identity as a church. That's where we find our unity. And it's far more important than anything that might tear us apart. And so Paul is telling the Corinthians and us, be unified. Be of the same mind. Be of the same Judgment. Agree on the same words. There in verses 14 to 16, Paul expresses gratitude that he didn't baptize many people, except for the ones that he did. You have this sort of funny digression. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say they were baptized in my name. Paul doesn't want his ministry to be a source of factions among them, and he's he's afraid that if he had baptized a bunch of people in the church, uh, that they may somehow have some twisted loyalty to him uh, that would sort of make them feel maybe even superior uh, to other people. Then in verse 16, he says, I, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know. I, I feel like this is the part of the Bible I would write if I were writing. It's like, I, I, I forget it. Who, who cares? Let's move on. But he says there in verse 17, he says, Christ didn't send me to baptize. Now, it's not that baptism isn't important. Right, clearly, it's important. So Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul says, I wasn't sent to baptize. Not that baptism isn't important. Clearly it is, it was. If you read Paul's letters, he talks about baptism all the time. He loves baptism. Christians should be baptized. He even remembers here that he did baptize a few people. What he's saying is that's not the most important thing I was sent to do. Right? Baptism isn't essential to salvation. You can have Christians without baptism. But you can't have Christians without the proclamation of the gospel. And so he says there, I was sent not to baptize but to preach the gospel. And there at the end of verse 17, Paul begins a, a digression that's going to carry him into chapter 2. He says, I was sent to preach the gospel. And then he begins to talk about how he was sent to preach the gospel, or rather, in what manner he was supposed to preach the gospel. He says, I wasn't sent with words of eloquent wisdom. Because if, if, I, if I had been, Paul says, if I preached the gospel, and that gospel was was merely a message of eloquent wisdom, he says, it would have the effect of emptying the cross of Christ of its power to save. Verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And that's an extraordinary thing to say. Paul seems to think that, that these words of eloquent wisdom are, are so antithetical to the message of the gospel that they would have the effect of rendering impotent even the mighty cross of Christ. And so if that's true, well then Paul wants to avoid them at all costs, and we ought to want to avoid them at all costs as well. And so in the rest of our passage for this morning, Paul is going to explain what it is that God has done to frustrate and to defeat and to nullify this so-called wisdom with things that appear to be very foolish to the world. And so in order to understand what Paul says in the rest of our passage, let's see three ways that God manifests or displays his foolishness in opposition to the wisdom of the world, these these words of eloquent wisdom that Paul uh, wants so desperately to avoid. First, let's see God's foolishness as it's displayed in the cross. Then let's see God's foolishness as it's displayed in the church. And then finally, briefly, we'll see God's foolishness as it's displayed in Paul's preaching. So foolishness of the cross, foolishness of the church, and the foolishness of Paul's preaching. So first, let's Look at God's foolishness in the cross. You see that in verses 18 to 25 of chapter 1. Paul starts out by giving us an opening statement there to sort of unpack uh, what he means in verse 17. Uh, He wants to demonstrate to them that the word of the cross, verse 18, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul begins by talking about this thing that he calls the word of the cross. And the language that Paul uses there is is very likely significant. It seems like, from what Paul says in verse 17, and again what we read in chapter 2, verse 1, it seems very likely that the Corinthians, in their communications to Paul, remember he's receiving letters from Paul, he's receiving reports from Chloe's household, right? They're they're, uh, out there telling Paul what's going on in the church. It seems that the Corinthians were boasting to Paul about their special wisdom the Greek word there is Sophia and the special sort of insight or words that they have the Greek word is Logos They, they were convinced that they had achieved some deeper spiritual insight that they had some sort of philosophical knowledge that they had been able to move on from Paul's ministry. Remember, Paul had been amongst them for about two and a half, even three years. And it seems like they're, they're now convinced that, they're, that they have enough, that they can move on to something better. And so Paul here is firing right back. He says, oh, I, I have a word too. I have a, a logos for you. But it's not your sort of high-minded philosophical musings. Instead, it's the exact opposite of those. The, the word I have, Paul says, is the word of the cross, It's just another way of speaking about the gospel, the the good news about Jesus Christ, right? The, The word of the cross is this message that God in his great love sent his son to take on human flesh and to bear our sins on the cross, right? The word of the cross is the truth that the blood of the crucified son of God was shed to save us from our sins, So remember back in verse 17, Paul says that he wasn't sent to speak with words of human wisdom, but rather to preach this word of the cross. And this word of the cross, Paul says, is directly opposed to human wisdom, what Paul calls there in verse 20, the wisdom of the world. And so it seems really important as Paul sets up this this opposition between the word of the cross and the wisdom of the world, It's really important for us to understand what does paul mean when he says human wisdom after all we think of wisdom as something good right it might be helpful here paul is is using that word wisdom ironically he doesn't actually think it's wise at all he the corinthians think it's wise he's using their word in their way to show them that they're wrong right true wisdom is always a good thing the bible commends wisdom at every turn we want to live our lives wisely But here, Paul is attacking something that appears to be wisdom to the Corinthians. He's attacking what seems wise to the wider world, to to mere human beings. The Corinthians and their wider society think that they understand sort of knowledge and insight and wisdom. But, But these things, Paul says in the end, aren't wise at all. So it might be helpful as you read this passage to think of Paul as using sort of sarcastic air quotes here as he reflects the Corinthian position. He's responding to their so-called wisdom that in reality is no wisdom at all. And so what does that mean, though? What is is Paul talking about when he talks about the wisdom of the world or this wisdom of the Corinthians that that the message of the cross frustrates? Well, there in verse 22, uh, Paul begins to give us some examples of what it looks like in action. He says there in verse 22 that Jews sought after miraculous signs. This reflects their expectation of how God would save their people, that God would send them a conquering Messiah. God had acted powerfully on behalf of the nation of Israel in history, and they expected another display of great power when the Messiah came that he would usher them in to an age of political glory. So the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day regularly told Jesus, show us a sign. They wanted Jesus to authenticate himself by some great display of power. Well, to people who consider that wisdom, the cross is nothing but a stumbling block. The cross is repulsive, it's a sign of condemnation uh, the old testament law pronounced a curse on people who were hung on trees and so the understanding of the jews was that a crucified messiah was impossible uh, crucified people were those people who were particularly rejected by god and so the messiah could never come in that way right the word of the cross the proclamation that God's son was crucified for us and that that was the way God is saving the world, it's just impossible. It tripped them up. It was a bridge too far. It couldn't be, it couldn't be reconciled to the way they understood the world. And So Paul says it's, the message uh, is a stumbling block to them there in verse 23. Paul talks about the Greeks there in verse 22. This is a way of speaking of all non-Jews. He says that they there in verse 22, value wisdom to the Gentiles. The message that God had come in human flesh and was crucified in order to save men from their sins, it was was utter nonsense. It just didn't compute. Uh, The Roman historian Tacitus called the Christian message of the cross a pernicious superstition. Pliny the Younger called it a perverse and extravagant superstition. The message of the cross was about as intellectually respectable as saying that aliens landed in your backyard last night. It's simply foolishness. It's a made-up story. It doesn't make any sense. And these were the dominant responses in Paul's world to the message of the cross. So remember Paul, we read about his time in, in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. Right before that in Acts chapter 17, Paul had been in Athens And remember, he stands on the hill there in Athens. Excuse me. And he begins to debate with the philosophers. And he tells them about Jesus crucified and risen from the dead. And it says that they began to laugh at him, right? The message of the cross is folly to the world's philosophers. When the word of a crucified Messiah came into contact with the prevailing ways of thinking about life and God and the world, the world found it ridiculous. And friends, I think that's still true today. I think people are maybe less offended by the idea of crucifixion. The the spread of the church over the last 2,000 years means more people are accustomed to the idea that Jesus was crucified. But the message of the cross The meaning of the cross, the implications of the cross, the demands of the cross, well, it is every bit as ridiculous and offensive in our day as it was in Paul's. (coughs) Let me give you two brief examples of, I think, kinds of people, kinds of wisdom that find the cross foolish in our day. And as I think the word of the cross seems foolish, it seems exactly wrong to those who are self-righteous to those who are looking for some way in and of themselves to be right before God. I was having a conversation at the gym last week with a Muslim friend, or actually a Muslim neighbor, and we got on the topic of religion. And he commented, as, as many Muslims do, about how Islam and Christianity are at root the same. After all, we all believe that we need to be good people, that we need to work hard and do things that are pleasing to God. So I listened politely, I agreed with him that we should be good people, we should work hard, we should do things that are pleasing to God, but I also told him that he completely and utterly, 180 degrees, as much as humanly possible, misunderstood everything that Jesus was about, that actually Jesus hated his way of thinking, and the people who thought the way he thought were the ones who killed Jesus, because they couldn't stand him contradicting them anymore. You know, the basic conversation you have with somebody at the gym, right? (laughs) But I told him that, no, actually, the message of Christianity, Jesus was abundantly clear. The only people who can come to him, the only people who can be right with God are those who know, in fact, they're not good people, who know that they could never do enough on their own to make up for their sin. And instead, Jesus died under the punishment that we deserve, right? The word of the cross, that he'll save anyone, but only those who acknowledge their need for him and come to him in faith. Honestly, I I could tell that he understood every word that I used, but it made no sense to him. The idea that God would allow one of his prophets to die is completely offensive to Islam. The idea that it's not our goodness, but rather God's grace extended in the cross that saves us. It's nonsense. it's not just religious people. I think a lot of people think that what makes them acceptable to God, to others, even to themselves, is is their own sense of their goodness. And so we spend our lives working hard to to prove our goodness, to, to make our virtue visible to others and to ourselves. And so we support the right causes. We've got the social media posts and the bumper stickers to prove it. We donate money to charities. We volunteer with kids or the less fortunate. We're decent and kind and respectable. We're moral, at least in public. Well, to those kind of people, the message of the cross is ridiculous because it's the notion that you're actually not good enough. That instead of coming to God with your polished resume, you can only come to God with empty hands looking for mercy. As the hymn puts it, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. The message of the cross tells us there is no other way to be saved. And it's folly to those who think they're good enough on their own or think they have some system or series of rules and regulations that they can use to be good enough. I think it's also a ridiculous message to our world's sense of what some have called expressive individualism. So it's it's ridiculous to the self-righteous, and it's ridiculous to our sense of expressive individualism. Let's say that I think the wisdom of our age teaches us that we are each tasked with the responsibility to figure out who we are. That what we need to do is to learn to love ourselves, to figure out what's going to make me happy and bring me a sense of fulfillment. And then I have to follow that with all my might. Everything in our society, from schools to government to even religion, is meant to serve me in my quest to be most true to myself. And so into a world like that, and I don't think I really need to describe it, just if you don't know what I'm talking about, watch TV for 30 minutes, right? The world is discipling us in this way of thinking, and into that world that considers expressive individualism to be the the pinnacle of, of human achievement, that we've finally figured it out, that we've cast off the shackles of the past and figured this out, into that world comes the message of the cross. That Jesus actually saved us not by, in some sense, being true to himself, but by emptying himself, by becoming a servant, by... Denying his own comfort and pleasure and dying for us. The message of the cross comes and says we find salvation in denying ourselves. In picking up our cross and following after him. The message of the cross is not that I need to be a better version of myself. But that I need God to make me completely new. That I'm the problem, not the solution. In fact, I'm so much the problem that the son of God had to die. So that I could be saved and forgiven. See, friends, the wisdom of the world is utterly incompatible with the message of the cross. The two are in a tension that cannot be reconciled. One must be destroyed. Either you have human wisdom or you have the message of the cross. That's why Paul points out that both Jews and Greeks, Jews and non Jews, that's everybody, is left cold by the message of the cross because the cross and the wisdom of the world are opposed to one another. That's why there in verse 18, Paul tells us that all of humanity is split into two groups based on how they respond to this message. There are those who are perishing, and there are those who are being saved. To those who are perishing, the gospel seems ridiculous. It is foolishness. It's nonsense. It's gibberish. It's exactly the wrong way to think. Paul says, to those who are being saved, Christ is the power of God. That is to say, the cross through which that saving power of God is shown and exercised. to To the believer, the cross is the power of God applied on his or her behalf. And so, friend, every human being, everyone in this room must make a choice, the most faithful choice of all. Will you have God's foolish power, or will you have the world's powerless wisdom? Paul wants you to choose the cross. He wants you to look in faith at the cross of Christ and say, that's true wisdom. That's true power. And so he moves on in the following verses to argue for the supremacy of the cross's power over the so-called wisdom of the world. He gives us there a biblical argument for the supremacy of the cross. He, He shows us how God has already in the past stated his intention that he is going to utterly confound and destroy the wisdom of the world. So there in verse 19 you see he quotes from Isaiah chapter 29 where God declares his his intention to destroy and frustrate human wisdom and intelligence. For it is written, Paul says there in verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. For Paul, it's enough to say it is written. God declared centuries ago that he would do it and now Paul is making it clear that he's done it in the cross of Christ. This prophecy of Isaiah has been brought to pass. Paul reminds us that God has declared himself to be in opposition to human wisdom. That's why he talks a little trash there in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? There's a a sort of sense of joy and exaltation there in light of what verse 19 tells us, that God has declared that he's going to do it, Now Paul says he's done it. And and where are you? You you, you think you're so big. You think you're so wise. What what are you going to do now that God has made foolish everything you consider so important? There in verse 21, Paul tells the Corinthians that in God's wise plan, in his pleasure and counsel, he decided that he would not be known by human wisdom, right? Right? Presumably, God could have chosen to reveal himself in a way that we could have figured out through human wisdom. Romans 1 tells us that human wisdom can, in fact, know some things about God. That that unless we sort of willfully overlook it, we can see that God is extremely powerful. We can see things in what God has created uh, about his divine nature. But what people can't know through human wisdom, through mere observation, is God's saving message. The message of the cross, the gospel. Nothing in nature, nothing in philosophy, nothing in our morality will ever get you to the message of the cross. And what Paul's saying here is that that's exactly the way God wanted it. It's for that purpose that God chose to save people through the foolishness of the cross. You see, God chose to operate in a way that would seem ridiculous in a way that would seem insufficient to people, so that their wisdom would be destroyed. Paul's making his point clearly here, that the message of the cross is God's intentional plan to make salvation antithetical to natural human thinking. But then we're left to wonder, well, why would anyone ever believe if the, if the message of the cross is the opposite of human wisdom, doesn't it make sense that no one would ever become a follower of this foolish Messiah? we we'll look at what Paul says there in verse 24. Starting in verse 22, he says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. So how does anybody ever become a Christian? Verse 24, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. See, friends, Christ and the message of the cross, it's not weakness and foolishness to everyone. There is one group of people for whom he is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Some people will perceive the cross as disgrace and nonsense, but some people will see in it the power and the wisdom of God. And so who are they? Well, Paul says there, verse 24, those who are called. God, in his mercy, has made it possible for some people to share his perspective on the cross. Naturally, none of us would. We would think about Jesus and the message of the cross in the way the the world does. But God sovereignly calls some people to new life. And those are the ones to whom he gives the ability to see the cross for what it is true wisdom, the power of God. It's clear here that salvation is completely of God, that he has accomplished it by Christ's death on the cross. He's the one who makes it possible by his calling for you to understand and to love it because on your own, you'd never choose to follow Christ. He'd be foolish and weak. But if God has called you, then you're able to see things as they really are. And you see the great wisdom and power of the cross. And so Paul has proven his point here. He sums it up there in verse 25. He says, the foolishness of God is wiser than man. And the weakness of God is stronger than man. God only seems weak and foolish to those who don't know better. In reality, he's the one who's strong. So brothers and sisters, I think this serves as a caution to us not to expect or to pursue respectability in the eyes of the world. To the world, the message we love, the message we preach, that thing about which we say the same thing, we think the same thing, we're united in mind, that message is folly. To them, the Lord that we follow is weak. Now, not everyone actually thinks that way. You might meet lots of people who pay lip service to honoring Jesus, to sort of appreciating Christianity. But in my experience, once you really explain to them, once they really understand what it is that Jesus is saying and what it is that he's done, uh, most people sort of drop the facade. And so friend, what hope do we have of looking strong and wise in their eyes it's just simply not our goal. We're not here to look good to the world. Now, we don't want to go out of the way to be offensive needlessly. We don't want to draw sort of ire to something other than the message of the cross. But I, I can tell you almost, here, almost a guaranteed way to make people think that you're crazy. Tell them that you think the Son of God took on human flesh. Like, really, not like a story, but actually this happened. 2,000 years ago, and that he he died on the cross, but then he he rose from the dead, and now he lives in heaven, and he's actually involved in your daily life, and he's going to come back someday, and you're going to live with him forever in heaven. Right? If you want to seem normal, and if you want people to respect you, you probably shouldn't say that out loud, right? because the world doesn't mind if you're a little bit religious, and they don't mind if you even believe some things that might be far-fetched. As long as it's kind of vague and nebulous and as long as you're happy for everyone else to be true and accurate and right as well. But friends, the content of our faith is foolishness to the world if you don't have eyes to see it. And so if you want to be respectable, you're going to need to be quiet. I think it's clear that Paul's message here should hugely impact the way we think about evangelism. Right? A lot of people don't like to tell other people about Christ, or Christians sometimes struggle to share the gospel because it makes them feel foolish, like people are gonna think that you're nuts. And brothers and sisters, that's kind of the point, right? If you make too much sense to a world that is in opposition to God, that loves its own wisdom, and that rejects the message of the cross, if you make too much sense to them, then you're not talking about the cross. You know, it's interesting, if you, if you look at church history, False teaching almost always springs up in an attempt to downplay the folly and the weakness of the Christian message, right? If you you go even to a Christian bookstore now and you were to grab the 10 worst, most unhelpful, least true books in there, and it might be hard to choose just 10, but if you found the most 10, I promise you they would all be invested in trying to make Christianity seem more reasonable, right, less offensive, more popular, People try and make the cross more palatable to non-believers. But it can't be done without doing violence to the gospel. We don't change the message to make it more appealing to the world's way of thinking. Instead, we rely on God to change people's hearts so that they can understand his wisdom in the message that we carry. Later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul's going to talk about his ministry of proclaiming the gospel. And he says, Look, to those, to those who are perishing, like, we are the stench of death. Like, we, we smell like a rotting corpse. But to those who are being saved, he says, we are the aroma of life. But that's simply what it means to be an ambassador, to be one proclaiming this message of the cross. And friend, if you're not a follower of Christ, just, let me, in case it's not clear, let me make it clear how welcome you are here. We're really glad that you're here this morning. But if you're not a follower of Christ, I wonder if you realize that that you're pitting your own wisdom and power up against God's. You see, by rejecting the message of the cross, you are passing judgment on God. You've said that his way of salvation is, is beneath you, that it's foolish. But friend, you never stand in judgment over God. He stands in judgment over you. God is in the courtroom, but he's not the defendant. He is the judge. And so ultimately, in the end, it will be your wisdom. It will be your power that will be evaluated. And if you choose to continue on in it, you will be found wanting. God has declared here that he is is bent on destroying that kind of wisdom. But friend, there's hope. Because even this morning, God is, is... offering you. He's calling you to embrace his wisdom. You can renounce your own way of thinking and put your trust in Jesus and his death on the cross and you'll be saved because God has declared that he has and he will destroy the wisdom of the wise. So don't be numbered amongst those on that last day who are relying on their own wisdom. We should move on. Let's look and see the second manifestation of God's uh, foolishness in the world, and that is the church. We won't spend as much time on this since it's not too complicated, uh, but look there in verses 26 to 31. Paul says there in verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. He wants them to go back to their roots when they were first called by God to embrace the folly of the cross He reminds them that by human standards, by the wisdom of men, they weren't much. For the most part, they weren't wise. These were not brilliant philosophers out there teaching students. For the most part, they weren't very influential. They weren't the power brokers in Corinthian society. For the most part, they weren't well-born. They didn't come from the old society families. But. God chose them anyway. He called out a church from amongst the weak and the lowly and the despised. Friends, this is the, the demographics of the early church. This is the church in the ancient world. There were uh, obviously a few wealthy, influential, connected people, but for the most part, uh, the church spread amongst the, the poor, amongst the outcasts, amongst even the slaves. This is what James is talking about there in chapter 2, verse 5 of his letter. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? You see, James understands God chose the poor in, the, in this world to, to lavish his riches, his spiritual riches on them. The vast majority of Christians weren't that impressive And so why does God operate that way? Does God just like poor people more? Does he prefer weak people? Well, Paul says he actually has a point. He has a purpose in doing things this way. There in verse 27, Paul says that he chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God wants to shame the wise. There in verse 27, he chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. There in verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing, to nullify the things that are. And ultimately, all of that serves to make sure there in verse 29 that no one may boast in his presence. And that there in verse 31 anyone who does boast, boasts in him. See, God chooses to confound the world's way of doing things. He chooses the lowly and the meek and the humble and the poor because, because they wouldn't assume that salvation was their own doing. Right In Isaiah 48, 11, God says, I will not share my glory with another. And so the, the Lord has saved his people in a way that will not allow us to boast about anything except him. That will not allow us to glory in anything that's in us, but only in him. Think about it. If God chose the rich, like if God sent his salvation and said, what I want to do is take the the top 1% of income, right, in the entire world, and I'm going to make those people my people. Well, we would assume that salvation is just another perk of having money, right? That this is just what wealthy people get, right? If he chose the powerful, well, we'd assume this is just one of the benefits of power. They've earned it somehow, Right, if God gave his salvation to the, to the well-born, right, to those sort of old families that are kind of the, the bedrock of the fancy society. Well, we'd understand, okay, salvation, it's just their birthright. They get it, we don't. But if he chose the poor, if he chose the unlikely, the weak, the ridiculous, the unimportant, well, they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt it wasn't anything in them. It was only God, and they would give him the glory. They would be humble enough not to boast in anything themselves, their own wisdom, their own strength, their own power, their own might. They would boast only in the Lord. Now, oh, friends, it's extremely important that we grasp this. Paul's declaring that He, God has destroyed the wisdom of the world, but it's not simply that God's being sadistic. God's not a sort of petulant child pulling the wings off of bugs. God has a purpose in doing things this way. He does it for the sake of his own glory. Right, if God were only to save the best and the strongest, then those people would get the glory. People would praise them and envy them and want to be them. But God has destroyed that wisdom so that he gets the glory in salvation because he alone is worthy of glory and praise. Friends, we should keep Paul's perspective in mind as we think even about our own church. Here's really what Paul's saying in verses 26 to 31. He's saying that when God was looking for the most embarrassing, no-account group of people to represent his plan, he chose us. Right? We don't represent the world's standard of excellence. Right? As a group of people, not many of us are extraordinarily wealthy. Not many of us are powerful. We're meeting in a, a fairly unattractive building to talk about a bunch of ideas that haven't been in vogue in a long time. Right? There's nothing interesting, nothing respectable going on here from the world's perspective. But friends, that shouldn't discourage us because that's how God chooses to operate. I was talking to the, my same uh, Muslim neighbor at the gym. And uh, he's, he actually lives right across the street from the church here. And he says, uh, he said, I can tell you have a very good church. I was like, oh, how's that? And he said, well, I just see the people coming in. And they're, they're, very, they're very put together. They're very clean. Right? They're very proper. And I was like, are you talking about the Spanish language service in the afternoon or, or what? But, right, but for him, right, there's the respectability here. But, but friends, that's not how we should view our church at all. We're, we're the, the lowly. I want to tell them, like, if you actually knew us, if you knew our pasts, if you knew the, the, the sin we struggle with, if you knew the weakness, you wouldn't be impressed by us. You'd be like, God saved those people? Right? It's folly. It's foolishness. It's, God's not going to choose people like that. Right? God's only going to choose moral people, good people, clean people, important people. Well, friends, God has chosen what's humble and lowly because he saves in his power and not in ours. And friends, I think this way of thinking is sadly not very common anymore, even amongst Christians. So often churches are scrambling to look respectable and familiar as if if we can make church more like the world, then more of the world will come in. And so let's not talk about anything controversial or upsetting. Let's let's avoid anything that's counter- to, to the world's expectation of us. But friends, that's never God's agenda for his church. We are to be God's prophetic voice in the world, calling it to repent of its wisdom, calling it to heed God's foolish wisdom. And friends, the more we look like Jesus, the more we look like the gospel, the more foolish we'll appear to the world. Our goal is not to appear impressive or strong or rich or Powerful. And we shouldn't expect God to work through those things. We should expect that growth will be surprising, that it's going to be incremental, that it's going to be God's work in God's way. Let's look at our third manifestation then of God's foolishness, and that is Paul's preaching, and this will be where we wrap up. If you look there in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, Paul rehearses there a little bit of his history with them. So in chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, he makes the case that God wants to set his own wisdom up against the wisdom of the world. In chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, he shows them how how that's true even in the way they were called to the Lord. Now he wants to give them a final example of how God is is frustrating the wisdom of the world, and that is his own ministry. There's two things in particular about his ministry he wants them to remember. Uh, He wants them to remember the method of his ministry. He says that he... There in verse 1, that he didn't come with extraordinary eloquence that would distinguish him from other preachers. He didn't come with philosophical sophistication that could confound skeptics, right? You see that in verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, not proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Verse 4, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, It seems like, again, Paul's echoing the words that the Corinthians were sort of throwing at him. He says, oh, yeah, I didn't actually come with with lofty speech. I didn't come with eloquence. Instead, he says there in verse 3, he came with weakness. We're not really sure what that means, but we can be sure the Corinthians knew what he was talking about. Uh, The word that Paul uses there is the same Greek word that could be used of illness. So perhaps he experienced great physical uh, suffering during his time there. Right? But it's, it's something, the, the word means something that other people can see. It's a weakness that's visible to others. He says that he was there with much fear and trembling. Again, not clear exactly what Paul's talking about, but if you remember last week back in Acts 18, we saw that God had to send, uh, send him a sort of vision in a dream saying, hey, calm down, don't be afraid, don't stop preaching. Right? I have many people in this city. So Paul obviously needed his, his hand to be steadied. It's clear Paul was anxious for them to, to remember just how unlovely and unimpressive his sort of physical bearing was. and So that's Paul's model of ministry. That's his methodology, weakness and fear. And Paul also wants to tell them about the goal of his ministry. You see that there in verse 5. He tells them that the reason why he ministered among them that way was so that their faith, verse 5, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, Paul wants to make sure that they know they weren't saved by him. They weren't saved because he had thought up a message so clever that, that it was inescapable in its logic, and everyone had to agree with him. He says, no, I don't want your salvation to rest on my eloquence and wisdom. I want to make sure that your salvation depends on the power of God. Why does that matter? Why does it matter what your faith is based on as long as you have faith? Well, remember Paul's told us that the wisdom of man is antithetical to the cross. Faith that's based on man's wisdom is no saving faith at all. It's a faith that despises the cross and finds it foolish. Instead, we need to have faith based in God's power, which is shown to us, remember, at the cross. Remember chapter 1, verse 18. To those of us being saved, the message of the cross is the power of God. Paul's telling them, I didn't want you to be saved by my clever inventions. I came to you in weakness. So the only thing you got from me was the message of the cross. There was no eloquence for you to admire, there was no strength for you to emulate. All I was was a bundle of nerves and fear and weakness and a message of the cross that's so powerful that it saved you. Right, Paul's way of speaking, his manner, it illustrated his message. His weakness and his humility was attended by a display of the Spirit's power as people's lives were radically changed by the message of the cross. You see there in verse 4, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. The spiritual gifts, the insight that the Corinthian church was so puffed up about. Paul says, well, that's actually evidence of the power of my ministry. Weak and humble though it was, It shows that the message of the cross is attended by the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit is incredibly strong. Paul's telling the Corinthians, you yourselves are proof that the cross is the power of God's salvation. Because it wasn't me. I'm weak. I was afraid. I was trembling. I gave you nothing except the message of the cross attended by the power of the Holy Spirit, which has completely transformed your lives. So, brothers and sisters, as we wrap up this morning, it seems like the application to us is fairly direct. As a church, we have to maintain and even develop a taste for hearing and exalting in the message of the cross. We have to embrace a way of life, a way of being together that celebrates weakness rather than worldly glory and power and wisdom. And so we have to focus our life together around God's word, preached clearly and believed wholly. So I'd urge you, I'd I'd beg you to pray for me. Pray for anyone else who teaches here. Pray for the future of this church. I pray that this pulpit will remain faithful to the message of the cross until the Lord Jesus returns. Pray that we would always bring the word of God in a way that proves the power of God. Paul said that he knew nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. And so one of the ways we cultivate a taste for that message is by coming to the Lord's table in faith. The Lord's table is a picture of the gospel. It is the cross of Christ on display before us. The bread brings to mind the the body of Christ broken for us on the cross. The cup represents the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross. And the invitation to this table is open to everyone who comes in faith. The good news about the the Lord's table is that it's not only for the rich and the powerful and the important. It's not even reserved for the good. We come to the table, ourselves a picture of the gospel with empty hands, with nothing to buy, and nothing to earn. The only qualification for coming to the table is genuine remorse for your sin and trust in the message of the cross that Jesus has done everything through his death and resurrection. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's on those terms, and those terms alone, those foolish, weak terms. It's on those terms that foolish and weak people like us can come to God through Christ. And so let's pray, and let's come to the table and celebrate the message of the cross. Let's pray. Our oh, Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your great love for us. And we glory in you. We boast in you, the one who has confounded the wisdom of our world, and who's frustrated the strength of those who think they're strong. We rejoice we boast in your great wisdom. We delight, Lord Jesus, in your love that you would shed your blood and that you would give up your body for us on the cross. Holy Spirit, we praise you for the power that you display as you attend the preaching of this weak and foolish message, as you call those who don't know Christ to salvation. Spirit, we pray for Anyone this morning who has not yet turned from their sins and trusted in Christ, Holy Spirit, would you give them eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you give them hearts that believe? Would you help us as a church to love the message of the cross, to reject anything that is the the wisdom of the world around us? Would you help us to come now to the table in faith, delighting in the cross? And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.